National Archives podcast series, Forgeries in the Archives, presented by David Thomas. You can find speaker's notes and featured documents to accompany this podcast at nationalarchives.gov.uk forward slash podcasts. Thank you very much. Thanks, and thanks for coming to listen. I'm going to be talking about forging archives, why people do it, how they do it, how they get caught. So if you want some ideas for a new career, listen up. Uh, last year was a very good year for people interested in forgery and archives. In April, we released the records of our investigation into the forgery of 29 documents about Himmler, Hess and the Duke of Windsor. In June, John Liffin of the Science Museum revealed that the, the famous Rowlandson drawing of um, Trevithick Steam Circus, the world's first passenger railway, was probably a late 19th century forgery, sadly. I'm very fond of that picture. Uh, and then in, um, later on in the year, in July, the Brooklyn Museum of Art announced that a third of its Coptic art was faked. And then most significantly, I think, again later in the year, in August, Lee Israel, who forged a lot of documents about Noel Cowd and Dorothy Pavka published her autobiography. If you're interested in how a forger works, read Lee Israel's book. It's called Can You Forgive Me? Archivists have spent a lot of time over the past few years, past decade, I suppose, trying to stop people stealing records, but the idea of forgery is, and introducing things into the archives is, is quite new and something until recently we haven't defended ourselves against. There are, there are really three types of forgery which are commonly found in archives in libraries. The first is, is the alteration of, of registers and other documents. The second is, is the recreation of existing documents. There's a very good example. Mark Hoffman, the Mormon forger, whom I'm going to talk a lot about, made an original manuscript of a Daniel Boone letter. The Daniel Boone letter was only known from a printed copy, but Mark Hoffman made an original manuscript version of this, this exciting document. And then there are total fabrications... Mark Hoffman's fantasies about the origins of Mormonism and our own forger who believed that Churchill tried to have or was responsible for the murder of Himmler. In some cases, you can get forged texts without an original manuscript existing. The Protocols of the Elders of Zion, the, the alleged proof of a Jewish and Masonic conspiracy to achieve world domination, are an example of this. It's believed they were forged in Russia in 1902 or three but they're only known from printed copies. No original manuscript has ever come to light. Two witnesses said they'd seen a French manuscript, which was being claimed as the original. Both were sceptical, and one, Princess Catherine Radzivill, later suggested that the protocols were created on the instructions of the head of the Russian Secret Service in Paris. The current best view is there were no protocols, no elders, and no manuscripts. Sometimes... The distinction between forgery as something malicious and bad and forgery and a joke as, as a joke is, isn't always clear. Some writers use forgery-like techniques to add verisimilitude to a story. Daniel Defoe wrote two works, Robinson Crusoe and The Journal of a Plague Year, both of which mixed fiction with accounts of real events. George Stevens, the 18th century Shakespeare editor, spent many years producing forgeries, including the tombstone of Hardy Canute, and these were kind of malicious jokes on his friends and enemies. And even the great Borges wasn't above passing off his works of fiction as translations from obscure foreign works. I'm going to be talking about six major manuscript forgers today, 
the two Shakespeareans, William Henry Ireland and John Payne Collier, the 20th century Texas forger, the art and manuscripts forger John Drew, and Mark Hoffman, the Mormon forger, and our own homegrown Himmler forger. And these, these men illustrate the main behaviours and the full range of character types of forgers, the hard-boiled, the sad, the delusional, and the violent. Why do people commit forgery? Well, at first sight, the motives seem simple. They want to make money or to enhance their prestige. Mark Hoffman sold his Mormon forgeries to collectors and the Church of Latter-day Saints for large sums. John Drew made money by forging papers, which he inserted into the Tate Gallery and other archives. He did this to establish the provenance of paintings which his accomplice, John Myatt, had faked. Clive Driver tampered with catalogues and deaccession records at the Rosenbach Museum and Library to cover up his theft of manuscripts and books. Lee Israel, who was broke and living in a miserable apartment, began her life of crime to get some veterinary treatment for a cat. <laughs> Read a biography, it's great. Some forgers wanted to establish their credentials as researchers. Others wanted to make a political or historical point. In the 1930s, William Franklin Horn published manuscripts on genealogy and the history of Washington County, Pennsylvania, apparently designed to dramatise the lives of the pioneers of Western Pennsylvania, some of whom may have been his ancestors. The creator of the Himmler forgeries wanted to suggest that Churchill was behind the death of the Nazi leader. Others had more complex motives. William Henry Ireland, the son of his father's mistress, seems to have desperately sought the approval of his scholarly father, who regarded him with indifference. But let's dig a little deeper into the motives of those who forged for money. Hoffman certainly made money from selling forgeries to the Church of Latter-day Saints. He was born a Mormon, but he lost his faith, and he claimed that his forgeries were consistent of, with Mormon history as he perceived it. For example, one of the earliest works of anti-Mormon propaganda, Mormonism Unveiled of 1834, tried to show that Joseph Smith was involved in folk magic and treasure digging. Hoffman forged documents which confirmed these allegations. These included a letter from Joseph Smith to Josiah Stowell, which included instructions for using a split hazel rod to find treasure, and the notorious salamander letter in which a salamander, and not the angel Moroni, showed Smith the golden plates. Collier's more interesting. Collier didn't need to be a forger. He was a perfectly competent Shakespeare scholar, if he hadn't gone over to the dark side, he would have been in Sam Schoenbaum's Shakespeare's Lives as a hero rather than a villain. You know, a short chapter as opposed to a large chapter. E.K. Chambers said that Collier's behaviour was one of a few cases where neither con controversial fervour nor greed for lucre nor the spirit of mischief provides an adequate explanation. He put it down to some little twist of the brain or some strange freak of temperament. Chambers' view is too simplistic. Something else seems to have been going on. What it is appears clear in the case of John Drew. At the trial, the prosecuting counsel said the effort Drew put into the deception suggested an intellectual delight in fooling people and contempt for experts. Drew seems to have been having fun at the art world's expense. He gave the Tate Gallery £20,000 to help catalogue the archives, which of course included manuscripts that he'd forged, and he offered to give them two Bissier paintings, which he'd also forged, but they weren't of a suitable quality and the Tate turned them down. And it's 
It's this need to demonstrate a skill compared with a contempt for experts that marks the true forger of genius. Writing in the New York Times, Peter Landersman declared, a forger's chief motivation is typically intellectual gamesmanship. Embittered by the spurning of his own work, he takes satisfaction in suckering the entire art world en masse, then pulling aside the curtain, exposing himself as a renegade genius and the art experts as the frauds and fools. Mark Hoffman described how he felt when he took his forged Anton transcript to church officials. There was, of course, a little bit of fear involved, since, of course, it was a forged document. There was some excitement involved, a feeling of duping them. And then when he wrote to his parole board, he said, As far back as I can remember, I've liked to impress people through my deception. In fact, some of my earliest memories are of doing magic and card tricks. Fooling people gave me a sense of power and its superiority. I believe this is what led to my forging activities. This motivation was best described 300 years ago by Richard Bentley in his exposure of the forged epistles of Phalaris. He described the motives of a forger as either simple gain or glory and affectation, as an exercise of style and an ostentation of wit. To speak freely, the greatest part of mankind was so easily imposed on in this way that there's too great an invitation to put the trick on them. All forgers need people to put the trick on. People who are willing to buy into the false word the world the forger creates. The motives of the customer may simply be the desire of a collector to possess. Randy for antique in Philip Larkin's phrase. Jenkins Garrett, an inadvertent buyer of a forged Texas broadsheet, best describes the mental world of the collector. It must be recognised when a rare item is offered to a collector, which is considered a pearl of great price. The normal defences tend to fail, and the primary force which takes over is the desire to close the purchase quickly before the item is offered to another collector. The Texas forges were created at a time when manuscripts and rare book dealing in the United States was enjoying a golden age, fueled by a rapid growth in the number of wealthy universities in the western states who wanted to celebrate their status by acquiring a, a valuable collection of research materials. Other customers seem to have been motivated by religious belief. Some Mormons who bought Hoffman's finest works subsequently donated them to the Church of Latter-day Saints. Other purchasers were driven by a desire for knowledge. There are many members of London's Literary Society who were initially duped by William Henry Ireland's forgeries were living in an age when there was a great hunger for information about Shakespeare's life. John Bing, the diarist who was a friend of Malone, described how he went to Stratford-on-Avon and he bought a crossbar from a chair which had once belonged to the dramatist, which once belonged to Shakespeare. I mean, maybe 50 or 100 other people have bought crossbars from the chair. But um, Malone, at that time, published this enormous life of Shakespeare, but they're just dry records. They tell us nothing about what Shakespeare was as a man, what he, how he lived, what sort of person he was. So people turned with excitement to what Mr. Ireland had to offer. What Mr. Ireland had to offer was, of course, entirely forged. Above all, forgers rely on the willingness of customers to suspend disbelief. As George Miles of the Beinecke Library wrote, in the end, forgeries and fabrications, like all confidence schemes, succeed because we want to believe that which we know we should doubt. The problem is not simply one of dishonesty, but also one of deception. When a Mr Evans showed Frederick Madden the notorious Bellows portrait of Shakespeare, 
by Zinka. A forgery exposed by Abraham Wyville 30 years before, Baden expressed his views in his diary. What an ass this Mr. Evans must be to buy a portrait of such a character after the fraud had been detected and exposed so publicly. Verily, the number of fools is infinite. His views were expressed 200 years later by Lee Israel, who believed that most dealers didn't know that provenance wasn't the capital of Rhode Island. Some people just don't seem to be able to help themselves. In 1983, Philip Knightley wrote to his bosses, reminding them that in 1968, the Thompson organisation, then owners of the Sunday Times, had paid a large sum of money to a Polish arms dealer for the Mussolini diaries. Turned out, of course, that the diaries were written by an Italian woman, Anna Panvini, and her 84-year-old mother. Nothing to do with Mussolini. Anyway, nothing daunted, the next owner of the Sunday Times bought the Hitler diaries, so they've got good form in that regard. At Hoffman's preliminary trial in 1987, the former director of libraries and archives for the Church of Latter-day Saints testified that Mormon leaders accepted Hoffman's documents without question after he'd provided affidavits regarding the provenance of his first two major acquisitions. Forensic tests had been few, but Mormon historians had checked them for accuracy. The director of special collections at Utah University said, I buy a lot of things from Sam Weller, for instance, but Sam rarely tells me where he gets things. At his parole hearing, Victoria Palacios, a board member, said, I can't believe people didn't catch on. Hoffman said, I'm sure neither can they, neither can I. (laughs) While some experts failed to check the provenance of documents sufficiently carefully, others found it difficult to accept they'd been conned, even in the face of strong evidence. A dealer who bought one of John Drew's Giacometti's, the forged Giacometti, continued to maintain that it was one of the best examples of the artist's work he'd ever seen. If forgery is suspected, the first thing to do is to get expert advice. But you should get two opinions, because unfortunately, the most obvious expert may also be the forger. If anybody had bought a, a pamphlet by Swinburne or Browning or Ruskin in 1920, that have gone to Thomas J. Wise, Dwyer of Collectors and Bibliographer of those writers, and sadly too the leading forger of their works. One American gallery owner was worried about a Giacometti he'd acquired for £105,000. I went to a firm of art experts called Art Research Associates for advice. The proprietor of the firm met the owner at the National Art Library and showed catalogues and invoices tracing the picture's path out of Giacometti's studio. And the dealer was convinced it was genuine. Trouble was, the company was run by John Drew, who charged the man £600 to use evidence he'd concocted himself to authenticate a painting he'd faked in the first place. One crucial weapon in detecting the forger is information. In 1955, there were only two known copies of the printed broadside of William Barrett Travis's victory or death letter from the Alamo. This is his very famous letter from the Alamo. Another copy surfaced in 1972, and it was sold in New York. In the next 13 years, at least 11 more copies were sold. No doubt their buyers thought they were getting a real rarity, but they might have been less sanguine had they known about the large number of copies which were available. One of the benefits of the World Wide Web is that it increases knowledge and consequently reduces the sphere in which forgers can operate. Documents have four aspects, physicality, provenance, appearance and content. In investigating suspected documents, each of these aspects needs to be considered 
since none of them on their own can necessarily prove the authenticity of a document. Too much exposure to detective fiction gives a biased and exaggerated view of the power of forensic science. It's easy to see the world of detective forgeries as something out of Conan Doyle. I'm sure you'll remember those classic works by Sherlock Holmes on the typewriter and its relation to crime and on the dating of old documents. And when we were investigating the Himmler forgeries, you know, I thought, I wish I could have those Sherlock Holmes books because they'd help enormously in what we're trying to do. But although scientific ex- evidence can help identify fraud, it's no more valuable than expertise about content or provenance. I'll demonstrate that in a minute. Forensic scientists rapidly identified the Himmler documents at the National Archives as forgeries. Microscopic examination showed that three letterheads on Ministry of Information paper had been produced using fused black toner, probably from a laser printer. This was a 1940s document printed on a laser printer, so we kind of felt there was something suspicious about it. Careful inspection of the signatures showed that a pencil guideline had been produced to aid the creation of a forged signature. Traces of the pencil lines can still be seen on the paper. Comparison of the signatures of Sir Robert Bruce Lockhart with other genuine examples showed that the ones on the suspect documents weren't authentic. The Himmler forger clearly hadn't read his forgery history. Collier was unmasked in part because traces of pencil guidelines were observed under the ink in, his annota- in the annotation to the Perkins folio. This is his great Shakespeare forgery. Hoffman was relatively well-read in the field of manuscripts. He'd studied great forgers and famous fakes. This was found in his cellar when his house was raided by the police, as well as books on making ink. Clifford Irving studied the subject in even greater detail. He wrote a biography of a Hungarian art forger, Elmir de Hori. This is filmed by Orson Welles as, as fake. But this was a sort of apprenticeship, because later on he went on to write a forged autobiography of Howard Hughes, for which he went to prison, I think. Hoffman took great care to create appropriate material for his works. He studied calligraphy at night school, made his own ink from beeswax, carbon and linseed oil. He burnt 17th century paper to make the carbon because he was afraid of carbon dating. John Myatt, who forged paintings for John Drew, was much more casual. He used a mixture of paint and KY gel as a fast-drying substitute for oil paints. A good example of the use of physical evidence comes from W. Thomas Taylor, who has spent a lot of time identifying forged Texas broadsheets. The owner of a printing business, he was sensitive to issues of typography, and this handbill announcing a horse race in Columbia looked odd to him, and the type didn't match anything that the printer F.C. Gray had ever used. So he thought it was suspicious. And a, this was a, an 1835 racing club, racing bill, ticket thing. And anyway, Taylor is very suspicious about it and he takes it back to his print works. He owns a small printing factory and he shows it to one of the printers and the guy says, oh, that's century type. That's definitely century type. And they look at it up and it is. Century type wasn't introduced until until 1896, so clearly that document can't be an 1835 printed document. But on its own, forensic science isn't enough. Charles Hamilton, um, a well-known expert and author of great forgeries and famous fakes, authenticated one of Hoffman's forgeries. 
while a paper specialist, an ink specialist and a rare books dealer find no reason to believe that the salamander letter wasn't genuine. George Strike Morton, who was an expert document examiner who worked on the Hoffman case, explained some of the issues. He said, you can say that iron gall ink is consistent with ink used in the 19th century, but it could have been made yesterday in the bathroom. You can say that paper is consistent with 19th century paper, but if you avoid whiteners or other recent additions to the stock, you can buy rag paper today that's just the same. Besides, it might not be hard to get old paper. You could steal it from books published at the time or whatever. Provenance, where documents come from, is also crucial in determining their authenticity. Mark Hoffman went to elaborate lengths to authenticate the Anton transcript, the contemporary transcript of the golden plates which Joseph Smith unearthed following a visit from the angel Moroni. He showed A.J. Simmons, head of special collections at Utah University, a Bible into which a mysterious letter had been glued. And after a lot of careful labour, they removed the letter and found it was the Anton transcript. A well-known Mormon scholar then authenticated it. So the question is, where had the Bible come from? Hoffman said a friend, Ansel White, had bought it at a sale in the Midwest. But where'd he bought it from? Hoffman then found an antique dealer, Dorothy Dean, who showed him her sales record. And there was one item which didn't have a purchase next to it. It was just like $20, and they, she hadn't filled in the purchase. So Hoffman persuaded her that this mysterious item was clearly the sale of the Bible to Mr. White, and she signed an affidavit to that effect. This is Hoffman's famous Oath of a Freeman. This is America's first printed document. It's, it's hugely valuable and important and rare. So what Hoffman did was he took a copy of a patriotic ballad written from Abram, Abraham Lincoln's re-election in 1864, photographed it, removed its heading, substituted the title Oath of a Freeman. He then re-photographed it and printed it, and he took this new Oath of a Freeman to Argosy Bookshop in New York and put it in one of their boxes of ephemera. Then he went out of the shop, came back into the shop and bought it. So he gets a receipt from Argosy Bookshop which says Oath of a Freeman. And then when he produces the forged version, he has this invoice from the Argosy Bookshop showing he's bought this Oath of a Freeman from them. He just said, oh, I found it in the ephemery box at Argosy Bookshop and here's their invoice. Other forgers relied on adding, altering or adding to existing archives. Collier, the Shakespeare forger, had access to the collections at Devonshire House, Bridgewater House and Dulwich College. The Himmler forger added material to existing files here at the National Archives. This wasn't difficult. Uh, don't any of you try it, because, you know, we've got video cameras. Anyway. Um, <laughs> but it wasn't difficult. But in those days, things are much better now. And he just slipped a single typewritten sheet into a file. But provenance became part of his undoing. All very well to slip a letter from the Foreign Office into a file, and then slip three letters from the Ministry of Information into another file. Probably a good idea to add authenticity and spread suspicion by choosing files which had been housed in two different archives. Probably not such a good idea to use the same typewriter to write all four letters. <laughs> This is Lee Israel. She was a much more sophisticated forger. She got a collection of manual typewriters, which she used to create entertaining but fictitious letters from Noel Coward and Dorothy Parker. 
She stole some antique paper from a library and had letterheads printed on it. And she used an upended television set as a light box so she traced the signatures from stolen letters onto her forgeries. And that's a, a Lee Israel forgery. There's a great account in her autobiography of when the, the cops are after her and she's running down Broadway with these typewriters, putting them into rubbish bins and try, trying to escape arrest. <laughs> Among those who added to archives, 19th century genealogical forger Herbert Davis was perhaps the most blatant. W.P. W. Fillimore described how he visited the vicar at Stonehouse, Gloucestershire, who kept a parish register. Fillimore said that he had no opportunity of seeing the register, but the vicar informed him that after Dr. Davis's visit, an entry appeared in the register appeared to have become much more legible. When he challenged Davis about this, he explained that he'd breathed on it and that the carbonic acid in his breath affected the faded writing. Added that a mixture containing carbonic acid was used for this purpose at the British Museum. Again, don't try this in the archives. <laughs> so, some forgers are much less subtle. William Henry Ireland first told his father that he'd been at dinner with a Mr Mitchell, the banker, and he'd met a wealthy gentleman there who'd got many old papers which had been in his family for a century and a half and which might be of interest to the young William Henry. Arland had then visited the gentleman's chambers and was shown a chest containing many old manuscripts in which he found the Shakespeare material. Later he began referring to the man as Mr H and claimed that he'd further treasures at his country house. Eventually William Henry's father Samuel wrote a series of letters to Mr H and a kind of bizarre situation developed in which Samuel was writing letters to the fictitious Mr. H and William Henry, his son, was replying. Appearance can help curators to the alert curators to the possibility of fraud. One of the defining features of the Texas forgeries was that they looked too clean, having um, no annotations showing previous owners, nothing on them, just clean sheets of paper. Old-fashioned connoisseurship, the ability to sense that there's something wrong with a document or an object, is one of the best weapons to protect institutions against forgers. One of the few people to have recognised a Hoffman forgery was Randy Wilson, a Salt Lake City collector, who persuaded him to refund the purchase price of a pirated copy of the Latter-day Saints Emigrants Guide. And Ross Perot, remember him, billionaire, presidential candidate, had a similar sense about a Texas forgery, he was offered a victory or death broadsheet, but he wouldn't buy it until Don Etherington, a conservator at the University of Texas, had taken it to Yale and compared it with a genuine copy. He found a misformed letter A in the word flag. And the, the letter, I can't, unfortunately I haven't got a picture, but the letter A overlaps an, a, the letter in the row below. If you think about it, with metal type, that just can't happen. I mean, it can't, you know, because of the way metal type works, it can't happen. So... Perot returned the document to the dealer. Madden has described his reaction to the notorious Bellows portrait of Shakespeare by Zinker. Very little time sufficed to prove to me that neither the language, the spelling, the punctuation, or the forms of letters in the inscription around the head were of the time of Shakespeare. But appearance is not necessarily proof in itself. Madden himself authenticated a forged Shakespeare signature on a copy of, a copy of Florio's Montaigne. He bought the book for the British Museum and put it on display, and it remained on display until Madden died. Here we are. There's another Lee Israel forgery. It's kind of good, isn't it? You'd think 
Dorothy Parker could have written that, I think. The content of a document is essential in proving its authenticity. Do the facts stack up? Is the date, the spelling, and the use of language appropriate? Gerald and Sandra Tanner cast doubt on the Salamander letter because its content was too similar to E.D. Howe's 1834 work, Mormonism Unveiled. Similarly, Thomas Wise's forged print of Ruskin's essay of Queen's Gardens, which he dated as 1864, was recognised as a forgery because the text was that of, of Ruskin's revised text of 1871. It was clearly a forgery. John Liffin claimed that the Rowlandson 1809 drawing of Trevithick Steam Circus, which I showed you at the beginning, was a forgery because it contained a church steeple which was not built until 1826, and rows of houses not constructed until the late 19th century. This is one of our Himmler forgeries. It's a letter from Hugh Dalton writing to Anthony Eden. The, the forensic scientists initially drew this to our attention because the typewriting and spacing and everything on the letter were different from every other letter on the file. But it was also very like other other forged documents. And you can't see it clearly on this, but they all have the initials ES on it, which, which you didn't find anywhere else in the files. The other thing that we, we didn't discover, actually, a German historian called Ernst Hager pointed out to us, was that when he says, this is Hugh Dalton writing to Anthony Eden, yeah, and he says, I feel we must have another meeting to discuss where we're going to take this matter. And I'd appreciate your opinion. Can I suggest a joint car again next Saturday? Well, the trouble is, Eden was in Egypt at the time, so there was... <laughs> kind of undermines it. And this, this is another example. Um, another example of a, a Himmler forgery. And again, there's some forensic evidence. You know, the typewriting is like the typewriting on, on other forg forgeries. But one of the things we thought was very peculiar was this reference to the Duke of Windsor, Major General H.R.H., the Duke of Windsor, just seems a very peculiar way to refer to him. You'll all go and find examples of it. Yeah, it? But it's that combination of, of the, the typewriter evidence, the forensic science evidence, which clearly links this typewriter to typewriters known to produce forgeries and the content, which enables us, us to say pretty convincingly that that is a forgery. Sometimes there are attempts to um, resurrect the authenticity of documents which had long been considered forged. And I'm going to give you two examples. One example is some leather strips containing fragments of Deuteronomy, which Moses Shapira, an antiquities dealer from Jerusalem, claimed to have purchased from some Arabs in Jerusalem in 1878. He gave three separate versions of the story of how he'd acquired the strips, but all included a claim that the Arabs had found them in a cave. Suddenly, the location of the cave, if there was a cave, wasn't known. In 1883, Shapira came to London and tried to sell the strips to the British Museum. Trouble is, he'd got a record of selling forged artefacts, and the best contemporary experts declared the strips to be forgeries. Shapira then wanders around Europe, a sort of tragic figure, for a few months and eventually shoots himself in a hotel room in, in Rotterdam. But recently, some scholars felt that maybe the question of the authenticity of these strips should be reopened because after, after the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls in Qumran in the cave, a number of scholars thought that you know maybe there was something in the story 
They felt that the texts of some of the Dead Sea Scrolls were similar to the Shapira fragments. But the trouble is Shapira has been dead 100 years and the, his fragments no longer survive, um, so there seems little reason or opportunity for re-examining the, the documents. But sometimes forged documents do come back from the dead, and this is an example from the National Archives. This is two Revels accounts, one from 1605 and one from a little bit 1611 to 12, and they were found by a chap called Peter Cunningham, who was a scholar and antiquarian. He found them in... He had a job in the audit office in Somerset House, and he was looking through the cellars, and he found a lot of material, including the original accounts of the Masters of the Revels for 1604-5 and 1611-12. And in 1842, he published these accounts in a volume issued by the Shakespeare Society. They were controversial among contemporary scholars since they provided new evidence about the dating of Othello and the Tempest. But they had the authority of the Shakespeare Society and its learned director, John Payne Collier, behind them. So they were accepted. 26 years later, the world had changed. Collier was unmasked as a forger, and Cunningham had taken to drink. He took the manuscripts to the British Museum, hoping to sell them. The British Museum was suspicious about their authenticity, but recognised if they'd been removed from the audit office, then their proper home was the public record office. You know, give us the problem. The deputy keeper of public records took charge of them and wrote to Cunningham, saying that if he wanted them back, he'd have to go to court. So Cunningham, this is the, one of the pages from the accounts. Cunningham lost his accounts, but he also, also seemed to lose his reputation since the reappearance of these documents was regarded with the deepest suspicion. The Daily News in June 1868, well-known Shakespearean publication, said that they, they were forged, but they said Cunningham had been taken in. The American writer Grant White bluntly accused him of forgery. Cunningham didn't sue for libel, which was Grant White's intention, and by May 1869 he was dead. All the great manuscript scholars of the late 19th century, Madden and Bond of the British Museum, Duffus Hardy of the Public Record Office, accepted that the accounts were fakes. In the early years of the 20th century, the cry was taken up by Charlotte Stopes, mother of Marie Stopes, and the psychiatrist and literary scholar Dr Samuel Tannenbaum of New York. There are good reasons for suspicion. First of all, they just kind of look slightly odd, almost too good to be true. Secondly, you can see the person spelt the name Shakespeare, the playwright. This is the poets which made the plays. And you can see the word, the name Shakespeare is spelled S-H-A-X-B-E-R-D. This is the only known use of that spelling of the word Shakespeare. There are 300 variations of the spelling of the name Shakespeare, and that's a unique instance of that particular spelling. So people were suspicious. And the spelling was odd, D-U-C-K for Duke and G-R-I-N-W-I-D-G for Greenwich. And in the 1611-12 account, the word called is spelt with a single L, but somebody's put an extra L, a little sickle sign above the insertion. Find that. Can you see they've put this little curious sign? Just bear that in mind because it's important. We'll come back to that. And then the 1611-12 accounts recorded a performance of the Silver Age before the Queen and the Prince at Greenwich on the Sunday following Twelfth Night. But the records of the Treasurer of the Chamber, which also record payments, 
to play has made no mention of this performance. Another record showed the Prince went to a different play in London that night. But gradually, evidence began to accumulate that the accounts might be genuine. In the 1880s, Halliwell Phillips drew attention to a scrap of paper left by the great Shakespearean scholar Malone, who died in 1812, which seemed to prove that Malone had seen the 1604 documents. The scrap even contained the spelling S-H-A-X-B-E-R-D. But this wasn't conclusive because... The scrap isn't in Malone's handwriting, and some people claim it's a Collier forgery which was inserted into Malone's papers. In the 20th century, two writers, Ernest Law, who was a barrister, and A.E. Stamp, who was Deputy Keeper of Public Records, set out to rehabilitate the accounts. They went through the process which they might have used had they been attempting to prove they were forgeries. They got the Professor Dobby of the Government Laboratories to look at them, and he looked at the 16045 accounts, looking at the writing material, found the ink was ink. When Collier did forgeries, he used the kind of water-soluble paint. He didn't use real ink. So the fact they were written in ink was a good sign. He also looked at the depth to which the ink had penetrated the paper and the rate of fading and concluded that the same ink had been used throughout the accounts. Stamp looked in detail at the figures in the accounts and found that the totals corresponded to other accounting records at the... PRO at the time. He then looked at the spelling, and in particular this curious sickle sign over the letter L in the world, called. The accounts are signed by Sir George Buck, Master of the Revels, and Stamp found other letters written by him which contained a sickle sign to mark a double L or, or abbreviation. Some of Stamp's arguments are quite weak, such as his claim that the strange, ragged and patchy appearance of the writing in the 1604 five accounts was because the ink used had contained a lot of gum and was consequently very thick. The trouble is the accounts have been repaired. They've been washed and flattened and treated with gelatine, so you can't really say much about their physical condition. And he also had to rely on human error to account for the difference between the treasurer of the chamber's accounts and the revels' accounts. Law is equally fallible. One piece of evidence concerned a reference to the play so a performance of Love's Labour's Lost in January 1605, Law talked about a letter from Sir Walter Cope to Robert Cecil mentioning a performance of the play in January 1605, and he pointed out the letter hadn't been discovered until 1872, so it couldn't have been known to Malone or Cunningham. That's true, but the letter doesn't refer to an official state performance. It was to a performance in a private house for which the revels wouldn't have paid. But despite the fragility of some of the evidence, it's now generally accepted that these accounts are genuine, and Schoenbaum has said that the controversy over the Revels' accounts appear to have been settled. So what's the impact of forgery? Well, obviously some forgeries had a huge impact. You know, the donation of Constantine, the 4th century forgery granting the papacy dominion over Western Roman Empire was used by medieval popes to boost their territorial claims in Italy... That a Zinoviev letter, the forged letter from the Comintern to the Communist Party of Great Britain, may have influenced the outcome of the 1924 election. And the protocols of the elders of Zion contributed to the growth of anti-Semitism in Russia and the West and, and are still in circulation in some places in the Middle East. All of the forges I've discussed have been unmasked within a, a short period and it's doubtful whether many people still believe the forged information. But I a few years ago, unwisely published something on Shakespeare, and 
I was bombarded with letters from a man who was convinced that Collier's forged annotations on the famous Perkins folio were genuinely written by an old corrector. I mean, they just weren't, but this guy was obsessed by the idea that they were. Some um, historians were clearly inconvenienced and misled by the Hoffman documents, and some dealers and librarians wasted money on the forged Texas broadsheets. A recent edition of the letters of Noel Coward included two of Lee Israel's forgeries. <laughs> They're kind of better than the original letters, some of them. And Drew undoubtedly damaged those archives he attacked. The um, Himmler documents seem to have had little impact, fortunately. Few people have heard the theory that Churchill murdered Himmler, and when asked, most people said, yes, it would have been a good idea had he done so. <laughs> uh, <laughs> the biggest problems have been caused by Collier. Until quite recently, all documents that Collier had published were suspected by scholars. And in the, the Dictionary of National Biography, George Warner says, none of his statements or quotations can be trusted without verifying, and no volume or document that has passed through his hands can be too carefully scrutinised. He was such a malign influence that even his genuine discoveries have come under attack. In the 1950s, Sidney Race pursues a campaign against him in Notes and Queries, condemning even documents which had been known before Collier brought out his editions of them. But in 2005, Arthur and Ing Freeman produced their mammoth two-volume Life of Collier, which examines every single document that Collier handled and indicates which are forgeries or not. It is the most tedious book I've ever read in my life, but <laughs> it's very nevertheless a great work of scholarship, and, and if you're interested in this, worth, worth looking at. Clearly, forgery does poison the well of history. Max Hastings said of the Himmler forgeries that it's hard to imagine actions more damaging to the cause of preserving the nation's heritage than willfully forging documents designed to alter our historical record. So, just one final thought to leave you with, really. It's very easy to fall victim to a forger. I mean, lots of distinguished historians have perfectly, you know, just, just fallen into traps that forgers have, have made. I'm not going to name all them, but there are quite a few distinguished people have happened, it's happened to. And the biggest risk occurs with people who work on very famous individuals. You know, if you work on Shakespeare, if you work on Robin Hood, if you work on Himmler, if you work on Hitler, then there's a greater chance you'll run, on, run into forgeries than if you work on, you know, obscure members of your family or whatever. So that's an, an area of caution. I think the important thing is that any new discovery you read in the, in the newspapers about Shakespeare or Hitler or whatever has just got to be treated with caution until it's proved genuine or not. That's all I've got to say. Thank you for listening. This event was recorded live on the 11th of June 2009 at the National Archives, Kew. This podcast is copyright to the National Archives. All rights reserved.